All right. Uh, by a show of hands, uh, how many of you currently have a? Ch I'm talking specifically people who are who are a little, you know, um, beyond childhood. But how many of you currently have a childhood friend that they talk to that you're still friends with at least once a year? Childhood friend, raise your hand. All right, all right. Now keep your hand up if you talk to that person uh, on average at least once a month. Anyone? Okay. What about once a week? All right, we got a few people. This is very good. This is very impressive. Well done. You can put your hands down. I uh, I would not have my hands up. I, uh, I'm i a little jealous, though. I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of months. I've been reflecting on my life and my past and old friendships and all of this sort of stuff. And uh, I'm not good at keeping relationships going. I'm one of those, for all those who didn't raise your hand, I'm right there with you. Um, uh, I move on in a season of life, and I think about my life in seasons. I, I had uh, friends that I had in high school, and I had friends in college, and I had friends post-college, and I had friends when I became a pastor at one church and friends at another church, and I just realized in my young adulthood that I wasn't very good at maintaining those relationships like ongoing, and so I don't really have good friendships that go all the way back to childhood, but I've been thinking about this, and I've decided that I want to do something about it because there were some really meaningful relationships, so I've decided I'm going to write an old-fashioned letter. Do you remember those? Um, when you'd write and like it print them and then you like use uh, the United States Postal Service that still exists and you know you mail it so I decided I want to do this and I'm going to do a letter I'm going to let people know what I've been up to what I've what I've learned since we've been friends how I've grown what I'm into and I'm going to mail it old school which means I have to track down all these addresses this is what's kept me from doing it so far because first I have to text <laughs> or Facebook message or email people and get their address which, you know, you could just send the letter that way. But um, uh, I haven't done that yet, and I'm not sure when I will. But now that I'm telling you the story, I have to. But uh, I'm going to track them down. I'm going to print it out. It's, you know, it's going to look nice. Uh, and if I, but if I do this, when I do this, I write a letter to old friends. If I wrote a letter to old friends or even just people who are long-distance friends who maybe I try to stay in contact with, it would feel a lot like a letter I was writing to old friends or long-distance friends. I, I would come across like I hadn't talked to them in a while. I, I'd have to fill them in about my job. I'd have to tell them about Finn, um, my new hobbies, maybe new revelations or aha moments. I'd have to speak to them as if we used to be friends, not that we currently are. And that's got me thinking. We're going to, over the next weeks, uh, July and August, maybe into September, we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter from Paul. It's written uh, to a church that he helped start. Um, and he's writing this letter from Rome, most likely from Rome. I'll dig into that a little bit later. But years after, he's writing it years after he planted the church. He's currently in prison, so obviously a lot in his life has changed. It's a letter to old friends separated by hundreds of miles without internet, without text messages, without phone calls, years after he last visited them in person, and most likely months since the last time he heard from them, and yet he writes this letter that sounds like they were best friends who never missed a beat. There's so much affection, so much joy, so much love. Something about their relationship formed this really deep connection Unlike any long-distance relationship I'm used to, uh, although those who raised your hand, maybe, maybe you're used to it. And that got me thinking, what does it mean to be really close to somebody, even if you're not, even if you're separated by time 
in space. That's what I want to explore today as we begin looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, or the Philippians. Um, Now, this is mostly uh, a sermon for those who didn't raise their hands. So for those who did, uh, you might uh, get something out of this. I hope you do. But you also might come up afterwards and tell me, you know, Joe, this is what you need to know about from from somebody who really, you know, actually is good at this sort of thing. So for that, given that context, let's do it. Um, We're going to start in chapter 1 of the letter to the Philippians, verse 1. If you have a handout, it is provided. We're going to look at verse verses 1 through 8, and you can follow along in the handout, or you can look it up on your phone. Just Google Philippians, uh, but not the Philippines, um, but the Philippians 1, and uh, this is how it starts. It's a letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts a letter out like he does a lot of his letters. This was an ancient appropriate way to start a letter out. Paul takes the normal, sort of typical way of writing a letter. He makes it into theology. So he, he, he adds tons of theology to just this very interesting opening letter. A couple of things. He adds all these identifiers to himself and to the people he's writing. He refers to himself as a servant. That's softening the language a little bit. A more accurate translation would be indentured servant or slave. He said, I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a servant. And then he writes to all of God's holy people. That's also a little softening of the language. A more accurate translation would be to all the saints. So, um, you know, some traditions venerate people to a very high degree. But uh, here you see him referring to the entire church as saints, which is another theological perspective around we all are kind of saints. We're God's people set aside. And then he specifically names the, the overseers and deacons. Once again, softening the translation, he's referring to bishops and deacons. You know, we think of, uh, in our context, maybe not your context, but in, in, in my context, I have, I have a bishop, which means you all have a bishop. Uh, Alyssa gets to work with our bishop at the conference office. He oversees, a, you know, over 1,100 churches, and now he's also a bishop. We're, we're less than that now. We used to be 1,100, but, you know, they just keep closing them. Can't close them fast enough. Just kidding. That's inside joke. A few of you got a lot of dysfunctional churches out there, FYI. Anyways, um... Uh, he's also the bishop now of another conference temporarily because that bishop is experiencing health problems. So a bishop's kind of like a high up. In other denominations, bishops are kind of a big deal, you know. Here, he's writing to a local church. They haven't built this, like, big, elaborate system. Where they don't have a conference office. They don't have a church building. This is a house church. This is just a group of small people in a small, in this big city um, trying to follow after Jesus. And the people who are leading this house church are referred to as bishops and deacons. And so what you have here is a small group. And so maybe another translation we should use for our small group leaders is bishops and deacons. That's going to be our new terminology for small group leaders, bishops and deacons. That's essentially what we have here. So just bringing it into context, here's this intimate little community of people and their leaders, and he gives them a greeting, grace and peace. Now out of this, everything else is out of this deep theology of God's grace. Grace and and peace. Now, I'm going to kind of pull back some of the theology um, and try to get to some of the practical stuff, but you need to understand that my assumption is that we understand that this is coming from a deep theological place, that he's talking about God's grace, and through God's grace, all of these things become practical, become possible. 
So going on to verse 3, it says this. I'm going to read, uh, verses, I'm going to read the rest of the verses, uh, one, 3 through 8, and then we'll talk about it. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Wrapped up in this poetic theological discourse, you can see his deep affection for his friends at Philippi. Specifically, he expresses five essential elements whether uh, for any relationship, whether it be uh, a friendship, whether it be a marriage, uh, uh, your family, whatever. These five things are what you're looking for in a, in a great relationship. Here they are. Gratitude, joy, confidence, affection, and longing. Now, on the handout, if you want to, you can underline these where they show up in the passage. Verse 3, he says this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Gratitude. He's, he's so thankful for the relationships that he has. It's a sign of a healthy relationship. Verse 4, he says, I always pray with joy. Joy, another sign of a really healthy, great relationship, whether it's friendship, spouse, family, whatever. Verse 6, he says he's being confident of this. He's specifically confident of what God's going to do, but there's a sense of confidence in who they are becoming. He's got hope in who he's, there's a confidence in these people. That's verse 6. Verse 7, I have you in my heart. So there's this deep affection. And then verse 8, I long for you. There's this longing, another sign of a really healthy relationship. You, you miss the people when you're not around them. This is not a surface relationship. It's a deep friendship. Paul's friendship is filled with gratitude, longing, affection, confidence, and joy. So much joy. In fact, joy is one of the themes of this letter. Throughout this letter, forms of the Greek word for joy or rejoice are used 14 times in this letter. And I wonder if those are connected. I wonder if maybe we'd experience more joy in life if we had these kinds of relationships. One thing I can tell you for certain, Paul's circumstances aren't the reason he's happy. He's in prison. Not a very nice prison either. Um, certainly not a white-collar crime prison. An ancient Roman prison, which was not a great place to be. He's in prison, and his joy isn't coming from his life situation. It's not because he got a better job or because he got more money or because he got a more comfortable home, because he got better friends, or because he finally became popular, or he moved into a good neighborhood, which are some of the things we look for to find happiness, even though those things typically, honestly, help us go, go against forming honest, deep relationships. No, his joy has to be coming from somewhere else. It comes from somewhere else much deeper. He loves his friends. There's something about our society that is sexualized affection. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but uh, especially amongst uh, 
men, I don't know if it's true for women or not, but sexualized affection. We live in a society where the only place that this kind of deep affection is allowed is in a romantic relationship, maybe sometimes within a family. In other words, have you ever pulled aside a friend and looked them in the eyes and said, I have you in my heart, if you had no intent to sleep with them? Or have you ever had one of the, you know, the guys over for whatever sporting event you wanted to watch, and during the commercial break, you turn the volume down, and you let them know that when you were on your business trip, you longed for all of them. I longed for you. I, I just don't think that's going to fly. Imagine if you started sending text messages, and you ended them with, I have you in my heart, and I long for you. It would be a little awkward in our society. Culturally, it wouldn't be accepted. Unless you're a parent or a spouse or a girlfriend, boyfriend, or maybe if you're from a different generation, or maybe it's possible amongst uh, certain numbers of you, maybe that's your secret to those who raised your hand. I don't know. Uh, But for for a lot of us, I don't see it happening. Um, Why? What makes deep friendship so awkward in our society? It's something I struggle with. Now, I know what's going to happen uh, after this sermon, because this is what typically happens. I'm going to get text messages where people tell me that I'm in their heart and that they long for me. But regardless of that, uh, I want to pause for a moment, and I just want to zoom out and look at this. The traditional location for this letter, Paul's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And the traditional location is, he, is he, he's in Rome. There's some debate, debate around that. Some say he's in Ephesus, which would change this illustration entirely. But, but typically, it's, it's been assumed he's in Rome. And there's there references in the letter. In, in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, it refers to uh, the palace guard, which would be typical for Rome. And then in chapter 4, verse 22, he, he refers to Caesar's household, um, the, sort of the royal household, uh, which would be more typical. Typical in Rome, although they, they certainly could have been found other places. So it's likely he wrote this while in prison in Rome. So this is how he ended up in prison, just, just to bring us up to speed. At the end of Paul's ministry, uh, he's arrested in Israel, and he happens to be a Roman citizen, so he appeals to Rome. As a Roman citizen, he could say, no, I want to go to Rome and have my trial there. So they ship him off to Rome. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He ends up in Rome where he's arrested on house arrest for quite a while, and then tradition suggests that he's martyred there. In other words, he's executed in Rome at some point. We're not given that part of the story, but tradition suggests that that's what happens. We do know he eventually died um, because we all do. Um, But during this house arrest in Rome, he writes the church in Philippi, this church that he helped start years before. And here's why this matters. Rome and Philippi are 800 miles apart. Easily a two-month journey between the two. And in this letter, we, we get the sense that we see these messages have gone back and forth before this letter, that, that there's been about five different times someone has made that journey. First, someone goes to, uh, from Rome to Philippi to tell, Paul, to tell them that Paul is in prison. Then the church sends uh, someone to Paul with money to help him, but the guy who they sent gets sick, and so that he has to send someone else back and say, hey, the guy's sick, um, and let them know that the guy is sick and he can't travel. Then they reply that they got the message, is sent back to Rome, and finally then he writes this letter. So imagine if you had to wait two months And someone had to travel 800 miles just to reply to a text message. Now, some of you are thinking, sounds like some great boundaries. But the question is, would you put in that much effort? The church in Philippi did. 
And if you want to understand why Paul is so happy to write them, why this letter is filled with joy, one of the reasons is because the church put in that much effort communicating with Paul. And isn't that how relationships work? The joy of a relationship is often proportional to the effort put into the relationship on both sides. You can quote me on that. The joy of a relationship, and I'm talking if you're married, if you're a part of a church, if you've a, a, you got a friend group, you've got a child, the joy of a relationship is often proportional to the effort put into that relationship on both sides. When two people or two communities put in an equal amount of effort, there tends to be a greater appreciation and joy. Now, when it's one-sided, that joy can turn bitter, can it? So the question is, would you travel two months just to get a message to a friend you cared about? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, of course I would. I would travel as far as I needed to to get in contact with my friend. And you were likely the people who raised your hands at the beginning. For the rest of us, we're thinking, I don't even have time to send a text message to my old friends. I don't know how I would travel two months. And for those who resonate with this, this has never been more relevant in our world. I mean, how many friends have fallen away over the last year, over the last year and a half, two years? because we've been separated by COVID. How many people have we lost contact with, not because they moved away, but because we moved on and we became isolated? I wonder if there isn't somebody that comes to mind right now that you're thinking about, you know, I should reach out to that person. Well, one challenge for today is why not? Sometime today, take a moment, write a letter, you know, mail it or send a text or make a phone call and reach out to them. It was Paul and the church in Philippi's commitment to keeping that relationship alive uh, that, that brought so much joy. But it wasn't the only thing going for them. They didn't just travel for months to see how Paul was doing. They also sent a gift to Paul. We find this out at the end of the letter, so we'll get to this uh, at the end of the series. But the church in Philippi sent Paul a gift. Now, something you have to keep in mind is that um, in the ancient world, uh, prisons weren't like the prisons we have today. Uh, they didn't provide room and board. They just provided room. Uh, you got locked up. And so you had to provide your own food. You had to rely on the generosity of friends and family to bring you food or to bring you money to buy food when you were locked up. And so Paul needed the generosity of other people in order to survive in this prison house arrest situation. And the church in Philippi sends them, uh, sends Paul a gift. Now, in this context that Paul is thinking about when he says this in verse 4 and 5, he says this. He says, I always pray with joy. And he tells you why. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, even though he doesn't talk about the gift until the end of the letter, he's kind of giving us a clue because this word here, partnership, sometimes translated fellowship, uh, partnership is probably a stronger word. Um, it, it's a Greek word referring to a business partnership. It's a financial term. So what he's saying here is you've committed financially to our situation, to my situation, to the ministry that I'm engaged in. One of the things that makes this friendship different from, from just any other friendship is that they share a common spiritual goal. They were like business partners. If, if the business was in the business of changing the world in the name of Jesus. And I, I love this view of giving. And I really kind of don't want to think of giving any other way. They didn't just give Paul money out of generosity. Paul viewed it as a partnership, a collaborative nature. We've just, we live, our entire community lives because people are generous. And I want to say that, that for you who give to support the ministry, I, I view us as, we're all in this together. 
It's this beautiful partnership. And I don't want to take business partner too far because the church isn't a business. We're going to do things that businesses won't do. But I do like this idea that we're in this together and we're working towards a common goal. We're partners. So first, their relationship had this deep commitment to each other. They were willing to go the distance, literally. Second, they were financially invested in each other. They valued each other's relationship beyond just words. But with all that they had, they were willing to be generous, working towards a common goal together. And third, he had confidence or hope in who they were becoming. He says it like this, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He believed in their future. He believed that they would become the people God had called them to be. Now, you might not realize this, but this kind of hope is essential to a deep relationship. In fact, I would suggest that when this hope goes away, when this confidence in who another person or a group of people are becoming, when, when, it, when it goes away, so does the relationship. In fact, I think it might be the biggest reasons uh, relationships ultimately fall apart. There might have been a thousand other reasons leading up to that point, but the breaking point for many relationships come when I no longer trust the person you're becoming. I can't, I can't get on board. We stop believing that, that, that the person can change. We stop believing that the person that, that, that they're becoming. Let me, let me explain it like this. First by saying this. It needs to be said. We already know it, but I'm going to remind us. We are not who we should be. We haven't arrived, friends. Uh, we're not done yet, and we aren't perfect. We make mistakes. We mess up. We say the wrong thing. We fail. Now, there's no, there's no need to feel bad about that. I don't, I'm not saying that to, make, to, to stir up shame. It's okay. We're human, but it's still true. We aren't perfect. The question has never been whether we're perfect. The question is, where are we headed? What direction to what aim? In other words, it's not who am I. It's who am I becoming? Where am I headed? It's when we lose sight of that that we lose hope in a relationship. When we don't like where someone is headed or the fact that they aren't headed anywhere, that we have to give up the relationship. It's why I think sometimes children stop talking to their parents. They no longer can trust the person their parents have become or they, they can no longer hope that their parents will be any different. It's why a spouse will file for divorce because they've given up hope on who the other person is becoming. It's why I struggle sometimes to talk to my family members beyond just surface-level conversation at times because I don't agree with the person that they've become or the person that they're interested in becoming, and I don't think they're going to change their mind, and I don't think they're open to growth, and so it's easier just to avoid hard topics, and I can't be the only one. I'm not criticizing that. It's okay. Because too much hurt has happened because people have held on to hope when it wasn't deserved or earned. That's, that's also why people stay in abusive relationships of all kinds. They believe that even though there's no evidence to suggest it, that this person is going to change. That's why people stay in bad, dysfunctional, even abusive uh, churches or religious settings. They hope that enough time they'll change, that it'll get better, and it might not. Now, here's my point. Having confidence that someone is going to grow and mature and become the person they're meant to be is one of the reasons Paul felt so much joy and felt so much affection for this church. 
And he makes it clear in verse 7 that he's justified in feeling this way. He says it like this, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way. Oh. Sometimes it wouldn't be okay to feel that way. That's dysfunctional relationships. But here he says it's right, and then he explains why. Here's, what he, here's why it's okay for him to feel this way. Toward, I'm confident in who God is making you to be, and this, we're going to have a beautiful relationship for, the, for, for a long time. Here's why. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, so there's like a deep connection, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. In other words, he can see God's grace at work in their lives in part because they have loved him even when he was in chains. This is a good way to determine if someone is becoming the kind of person worth having this kind of confidence in. When your life falls apart, how do they respond? See, Paul ends up in prison. And this church doesn't give up on him. They aren't embarrassed by him. They aren't ashamed of him. They support him. Even when it's hard, they're very generous. They send a gift. They, they keep in contact, even though it's not an easy thing to do. And that was evidence to him that God's grace was in their lives because of what God does. God loves us even when, maybe especially when life gets hard and we mess up or we end up in a tough spot. And people who are becoming like Christ will do the same. See, trust is formed when people who say they love us show they love us even when life gets hard. And trust cannot be more broken than when people who say they love us disappear when life gets hard. Or worse, they don't just disappear, but they criticize or they blame or they correct or they're mean or judgmental or, Paul, you shouldn't have ended up in prison. You're saying the wrong thing. There's no greater way to build trust with somebody than to be there, judge-free, willing to help when life gets hard. And there's no greater way to ruin trust with someone than to be there, full of judgment, unwilling to help when life gets hard. You know, one of the things I absolutely love about this community is um, I, I feel like I have um, confidence in who you're becoming and what God is doing in your life. I, I say this with a certain level of hesitation, so let me be honest for you, just for a second, just for context, and then I'll be encouraging again. Um, as a person who's followed God most of my life and really took God seriously at the age of 18, I have seen far more people leave the faith than join it. Okay, that's been my experience. And given the nature of our community, I imagine it's probably similar for some of you. You've seen more people give up on that. I just had a conversation last month with somebody loosely connected to our community um, who just doesn't believe in God anymore. And there's no judgment here. I'm, I'm, it's fine. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't try to convince him otherwise. I just tried to be a good pastor and love him in the midst of it. No big deal. But I just have seen more people leave the faith than join it. That's been my experience. And I worry about my own, you know. Um, myself, like many of you, are going through all kinds of fun deconstruction and asking big questions and just a variety of challenges. So I worry about myself. And so when I read this passage and he says, I have this confidence that God would finish what God started, I, I was thinking about that. And I was like, where does that confidence come from? And I had this idea that gave me some hope. And it's in a very simple phrase. I want God to finish what God started in my life, just like I want God to finish what God started in your life. And the key to that phrase is I'm not the one who started it. 
that that God is doing something in my life that I, that I, it's mysterious and I can't can't explain. I'm not always sure what it means, and but but I trust that God was at work in my life, and 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 I trust that God is at work in your life. And one of the ways that we can continue to grow is to trust that it's not because I'm doing all the right things or I've worked hard enough or I've thought hard enough. It's going back to that really simple childlike faith and says, you know what, God, this is your thing. You started it, you're going to finish it, I'm just along for the ride, and I'm going to do my best to be faithful. So, having said that, um, I want to say that I have confidence in who, what God is doing in your life. And for the same reason Paul does. When, when life gets hard, uh, you don't run away. And I can just speak from my own experience, and, and I don't know if that's been your experience of our community yet or not, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm sure there's people who've been part of our community who've moved on because it wasn't their experience. It's something we talk a lot about in our small group training, uh, what it means to be there when life gets hard. I think it's really important. But for myself and for Alyssa, when life's got hard, uh, our, our, the church here has just rallied around. I mean, it's no, no surprise to any of you that we had a hard last year and then our marriage was in trouble and maybe neither one of us really liked the people we were, thought the other person was becoming. And we've had some significant breakthroughs. I'll share some of those uh, in, the, in the coming year. Uh, uh, some of you I've shared already some, some big breakthroughs and stuff. But, but all that aside, we had a really hard, really hard season and our church came along and didn't run away, even to the point where it's like, hey, you know what? Last year, this time last year, we're still in July, right? I don't know what I don't know what day it is. Last year in July, we took the whole July off. And when I talk to other pastors who work at churches, like that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. I don't know why, because church people are kind of terrible sometimes, in my humble opinion. But not not this church people. <laughs> we took they gave us the whole July off just so we could focus on our marriage and kind of figure it out. And I think that's just a small example of what it means to show up. And, and, and if anything, it's been too one-sided, you know, like the church has cared for us probably more than we've cared for you, and, and we're working on that, but it's going to take the rest of my life to, to earn it, you know, to, to pay it back, and, we're, and we're, we're here for it. But that's what I think it's about, when you find people who are willing to be there, who are willing to go the 400 miles. It's almost a song, isn't it, Ryan? I will walk. It's 500, isn't it? 1,000. 500. That's basically 400. I don't know why we're not singing that song after worship. I'm just kidding. Don't sing that song. Yeah, that'll get stuck in our heads. It probably already is. My apologies. But they literally will walk 400 miles just to be with Paul. And um, can't believe I didn't think of that joke earlier. Man, that was a real missed opportunity. People who are willing to go 400 miles, people who are willing to stay connected, people who are willing to, to give of themselves, to be generous, and when life gets hard, to not judge and to be there and to be a support. That's the type of community. And when we find that and we learn to trust one another, and I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm much better at being a loner. Uh, that's part of my personality. But when we find that and we invest in it and we build it, and that's what we're trying to do here, um, joy is one of the byproducts. So that's my challenge as we continue to try to figure out what it means to be a church during this season as we meet outside and hopefully <laughs> meet inside someday. Um, as we move towards the fall, let us be that. So that is where we're going to leave it um, for now. Um, I'm going to read a couple more verses at the end, but um, uh, we're going to pick up uh, in the book of Philippians again next week right here uh, as we continue to explore Paul's relationship with this really unique church. So with that, let's pray. God, we come before you and give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word, for your example of Paul, and uh, for all of his passion. 
um, for all of his heart um, for the church and uh, let it be an example for us um, for the ways in which they love one another. We ask that you would help us be that to one another, that we could be so uh, comfortable and secure in what you're doing in our lives, that we could trust in your grace, that it's not about effort, uh, it's not about uh, uh, necessarily doing it all on our own, but trusting that you're able to work in our midst. You're able to use us as broken and humble as we are, just as servants. That you'd work in our lives, that we'd know you. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>